What's up everybody? GenX Dividend Investor here. In this video I'll be answering 11 valuable subscriber questions which cover a bunch of fascinating investing and finance topics. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenX Dividend Investor and DM me your questions. If you do send me a question, then please tell me if you don't want your full name shared. And please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. The first question comes from someone on my Discord who was messaging me asking me whether he and his wife should pay an additional $500 a month on their home mortgage that they just got, or if they should invest $500 into dividend stocks instead. It's a great question and each person might have a different answer depending on their goals and risk tolerances and such, but I'll show you how I'd approach analyzing it if it were me. I put some info he shared with me into a mortgage calculator on Bankrate.com to help me figure things out. So he said their home is worth about 500 grand and they put 100 grand down and got a 30 year fixed loan at 3.2%. So that means they got a $400,000 loan and they pay about $2,200 a month for it. This is what their amortization schedule looks like. This says that they'll pay their loan off completely by 2052, i.e. 30 years from now. If we break down their 2200-ish monthly payment, we see that $662 goes towards the principal loan amount and that 1067 of it pays interest, and then 329 of the payment goes towards property taxes and 150 goes towards homeowners insurance. That means after their first monthly payment, they would owe $399,338 on the loan. If we ignore the $479 a month for taxes and insurance, we see that his loan is for $1,729 a month. What you can tell if you visually scan over this estimated payout schedule is that each subsequent month, more of his payment goes towards principal and less goes towards interest. So like the first payment has $662 going to principal and $1,066 to interest. The next payment has $664 goes to principal and a bit less to interest. So each month about $2 more is going into principal and away from interest. Let's jump 10 years into his loan to see how his payments look. Now we see $933 is going to principal and $795 is going to interest and we see that he owes around $297,000 left to pay off his mortgage. Visually it looks like each month he is paying $3 more a month in principal, so it's getting better. Let's look on mortgagecalculator.org to see another view of how his payments trend. Here each column represents a year of his payments. The first and last year columns look different than the ones in between because of the abridged number of months they represent. The very light blue section on top of each column is the amount of payment going towards taxes and insurance, which is an amount that normally goes up in time but this graph is modeling it as staying the same. Then below that section is a slightly darker blue section which represents interest, and below interest is the darkest blue section which is the amount of your payment that goes towards principal. The dotted black line shows your overall loan balance decreasing over time. You can see how in the beginning years the majority of your payment goes towards interest and how over time more of your payment goes towards principal, which is what usually happens on fixed rate loans. Banks obviously love you paying more interest in the beginning of the loan because that's better for them. That's another reason why I should probably invest more into banks, but since 2008 I've been annoyed with how worldly they screwed themselves and the nation and thus have stayed light on financials in my portfolio. Anyways, now let's see how things would change if this guy was paying another 500 bucks a month in principal, which would take his monthly payment to 2708. 
We see that paying $500 a month extra means he would pay off his loan by 2042, which means it would shave 10 years off his 30-year loan, effectively making it a 20-year loan. Nice. We also see that his first payment would have 1,162 in principal instead of 662, and that he is still paying 1,067 a month in interest. Side note, a tricky way to pay your mortgage faster without feeling the impact too much is to see if you can pay every two weeks instead of once a month, which is actually the same as making 13 full payments a year instead of 12. Okay, now let's see what happens if instead of paying another $500 a month in principal, he invested the money into the market. We can use my portfolio growth simulator in my dividend portfolio tracker tool to estimate things. Let's assume he invests into a portfolio of dividend stocks such that his portfolio's CAGR is 6%. And let's assume the stocks he buys have an average weighted starting yield of 3%. I think those are fairly conservative and realistic percentages for estimating. He mentioned dividend stocks in his question, but he could also look into the S&P 500 or SCHD or whatever. Okay, what we can see is that if he invested $500 a month and his stocks appreciated around 8% a year, and they maintained around a 6% dividend CAGR from his starting 3% yield, and he was reinvesting his dividends, then at 20 years he would have built a portfolio worth 346 grand that was dripping about $7,000 a year in dividends. This isn't factoring in inflation, and it doesn't speak to if they are qualified dividends or in a retirement account or whatever. It just gives you a flavor of things. Now let's cross-check that amount using a compound interest calculator on investor.gov. If we start at $0 and invest $500 a month for 20 years and assume we get an 8% interest rate, then we would end at 295 grand. Either way, we can see we would have around a 300 grand portfolio after 20 years, assuming we get those kind of returns, which obviously isn't a guarantee. We have no idea what the market will do over the next two decades. My gut tells me we'll probably go sideways for a while, and then we'll trend up, but I obviously don't know. When we look at how much he would owe on his 30-year mortgage at year 20, if he wasn't paying any additional principal, we see he would still owe 166 grand. So what sounds better to you? having your house paid off in 20 years with no portfolio, or owing 166 grand on your house but having a portfolio worth 300 grand. I literally faced a similar question a year ago. I sold my house and used the profits on my sale to invest mostly into dividend stocks, which you saw in my video called Watch Me Buy 450 Grand of Dividend Stocks. I kept some profit out for a down payment on a new home, and I got a 30-year fixed loan at an awesome 2.625% rate. When I was talking to my loan officer, he asked me why I even took out a loan since I could buy my new home outright, and I explained that I was pretty confident that I'd be able to outperform a 2.625% rate of return over 30 years. Of course, paying off your house debt is a guarantee, whereas the stock market has more risk. But not taking risks is risky to me. Putting more equity into your house isn't a terrible idea, as it's kind of like storing cash in its walls. Better doing that than wasting it, but for me it's not as good as investing it. Of course, the more equity you built up in your house, the nicer loans you could take out against it, so you can factor that into your decision making as well. Plus, many people get peace of mind knowing they're paying off their house faster. All of those types of things and more should be considered if you face a similar decision. Like, you might want to model what 5% market returns look like as well as 12% market returns to get a lower amount of potential returns as well as a higher amount of potential returns, all to help your decision making. It's probably smarter to be conservative with estimating like this. So while I can't tell you exactly what I'd do in your shoes, I can tell you what I did and what I'd counsel my kids to do. Another nice thing about investing into your portfolio is that beyond the cash flow you also have the principal. So while the markets can crash, 
Odds are your quality dividend stocks won't all go bankrupt or whatever. And you can use your cash flow to pay off some or all of your monthly mortgage. My dividends currently pay all my mortgage, and I expect them to trend up as companies do dividend hikes, which is pretty awesome because my mortgage is fixed. Obviously companies can cut or eliminate their dividends, so consider all those things and do what makes sense to you. Anyways, good luck on whatever you do, and that's awesome that you're thinking about these types of things with your finances, and be happy with whatever route you go, as there are an infinite number of possibilities. Don't limit yourself to the quick options I called out in this video. Okay, let's move on. This next question is one I get asked frequently. In this case, Francisco asked, what's your rationale for holding such a large amount in Apple that pays so little if you're in an income generating mode? Wouldn't it make sense to hold a fourth or a fifth of the amount of Apple that you currently have and then invest the other 200K in something that pays between two to 4%? So the answer is that if my portfolio was smaller and didn't generate enough income for me to be retired and I wanted to be retired, then yes, I wouldn't hold so much of a low-yield dividend stock like Apple or Microsoft. But I'm fortunate that my portfolio is large enough that I generate enough dividend income to cover my expenses even though I have material positions in low-dividend-yielding stocks. Often low-yielders have the best growth, not always, but usually. So if my portfolio was smaller, let's say it was worth a million, well then my 3.25% yield would only be making me 32 grand a year, which wouldn't be enough in income for me to be retired. So I'd probably sell out of Apple and Microsoft and go into higher yielding things. That's why a common path that many people take is they start with non-dividend growth stocks and then as they approach retirement they sell out and go into income ETFs like QYLD or JEPI or whatever because they're willing to sacrifice stock appreciation for income. I'll do that too if my portfolio is smaller. But luckily I can have my cake and eat it too in the sense that I have enough dividends to cover my expenses even with my low overall yield. And I get stock appreciation from stocks like Apple and Microsoft, which are my two best stocks in terms of total returns and my lowest yielding stocks. Thus, I can afford to focus on total returns and income and not just income because my portfolio is large enough. Okay, let's move on. My third question of 11 comes from Fraser who said, Hello Gen X, I've been watching your videos lately and they have been very valuable to me, but I do have one question. If I decided to invest in stocks for my Roth and taxable investing account, should both hold the same or different stocks? Hey Fraser, thanks for your nice words. Sorry the screenshot of your question is kind of grainy, but I took this on my old computer which was at a lower res than the new computer I'm on now. Anyways, I did a video that might be helpful called What Dividends Go Best in Taxable Versus Retirement Accounts that's worth watching. It really depends on your goals, risk tolerances, and such. For example, I personally hold my REITs in retirement accounts but not in taxable accounts because the majority of REIT dividends are taxed as ordinary income. Holding qualified dividends in your taxable account is awesome because the tax treatment is better. So specific types of stocks can have different tax treatments depending on account type, for example master limited partnerships. Which also means that when you do your taxes you might have to deal with more complexity based on what you hold where. International stocks can also have different tax implications depending on where the company is located in the tax treaty with the US and the account you hold it in and the paperwork you might need to file. What I usually do is hold qualified dividend stocks in both my taxable and retirement accounts. So I recommend trying to maximize your annual contribution to your retirement account and then invest into your taxable account any money you have remaining. Of course all my buys tie into my overall strategies for my portfolios looking at things like how much current income I want, how much stock appreciation I'm going for, what sector weightings I want in my portfolio, stuff like that. Some assets, like municipal bonds, can generate tax-free income, thus are better to hold in taxable accounts. The thing is you can't control market returns and you can't control what tax laws get passed. 
but you can control optimizing your finances for your investments and the accounts they are held in, along with how long you intend to hold that investment. You should also do things like look at your current marginal tax rates versus your probable future ones, and then optimize accordingly, knowing that things can change. Okay, let's move on. The fourth question is a weird one, and it was from a guy named Eric who said he's come into a bunch of money that he probably shouldn't have gotten, and he's stumbled onto dividend investing and he wonders how he should invest it. I asked him what he meant by he probably shouldn't have gotten the money, and his response was vague, and I got the sense that if he did the right thing he probably wouldn't have any money to invest. The whole thing sounded shady, and he never got back to me when I asked for more context and details, but it reminded me of a joke as well as something important to say, so I thought I'd share it. First, the joke. So I have this friend who calls me once a week. He tells me about how he gets to work out twice a day. Every month he reads a new book. He said he constantly gets hit on and can pretty much get it whenever he wants it, if you know what I mean. Sounds pretty good, right? Sure, until he complains about how much prison sucks. <laughs> you see, context matters. Details matter. Now, the real advice. Always do the right thing at all times, Eric. Be the guy who returns back to the grocery store to pay for the item that they missed when you were checking out. Be the guy who puts your grocery cart back with all the other carts, rather than leave it free-floating in the parking lot for some employee to pick up. I tell my kids I'd rather they fail out of a class because they didn't study enough, rather than cheat on a test to pass it. So do the right thing. It might set you back in the short term, but in the long term you'll be on a better path. Now maybe I'm reading too much into your email, but if deep down you know that the right thing is to return the money, then do that. I applaud you for thinking about investing, but I'd rather you don't invest and instead do what's right in the short term, then start investing when you can. Okay, let's move on. The fifth question comes from Colton who said, Gen X, I'm 25. Given the uncertainty of the US national debt, do you think I should continue to invest in my Roth IRA? Hey Colton, yes, I think you should. I assume you're thinking that the debt will become so crippling that investing in US companies will be too risky. Look, the US is arguably the strongest country in the world in so many facets, which is part of the reason why I like investing in US companies. And many great US dividend companies get large portions of their revenue internationally. Now if I were leading the country, I'd definitely rein in debt, but that wouldn't be popular so I'd probably be a one-termer. But I think having some pain now is better than more pain down the road. It's also probably good to invest internationally, but the meat of my investments will always be in the US. Just realize that there can be nuanced tax issues to be aware of depending on which international companies you choose to invest in. Regardless, try to cap out your annual Roth contributions while you can. Okay, let's move on. My 6 of 11 questions comes from Jeepa Del Monten who said, Another great video, Mr. Gen X. I also am a buy and hold dividend growth investor and have been called a dummy for holding some of my dividend paying stocks during market crashes and on, on earnings or other news. Actually, I usually rustle up whatever cash I can get and buy more shares of dividend paying companies during those times. Was wondering what your thoughts are on Clorox's price tanking. I've held it for many years and its earning outlook does not look good. I hesitate to sell it because it's been a good investment for me. Any thoughts? Hey Jeppa. Sorry to hear that someone is bashing your investing style. It'd be interesting to hear what they invest in. But it doesn't really matter. Who cares what they think? Honestly, you should feel bad for them because they're missing out by not investing in dividend stocks. Over the long term, multiple studies have shown how dividend stocks, on average, have outperformed non-dividend stocks. Anyways, my like Clorox actually did hold it years ago and just sold it because I wanted to invest in something else more. 
It's rare I do something like that, but since I'm too stupid to stockpile cash, it usually means I'm selling something if an opportunity comes up that I just can't pass. It might have been my Apple buy, I can't remember. Anyways, one concern I have with Clorox is that I feel their cleaning product line doesn't have an impenetrable mode. Clorox is known for its cleaning products, but it has products in other spaces as well. Yes, they have some patents which help protect them, but many similar cleaning products are on the market these days and consumers often go to cheap alternatives. It's not like it was when I was a kid when knockoffs were more rare and brands had staying power. Companies like Amazon keep coming out with cheap knockoff products. That's actually my concern with other companies I own that make toilet paper or toothpaste or whatever. The Amazon effect can't be disregarded. Anyways, you say you hesitate to sell it because it's been a good investment for you. I understand that, though just because something was a good investment doesn't mean it will remain a good investment going forward. Really, the question is if you believe it will continue being a good investment going forward, and how does it fit into your overall portfolio strategy? I personally would be fine to own Clorox again, and every so often think about getting back into it, but I feel I already have enough consumer products from Kimberly Clark, Procter & Gamble, and Colgate Palmolive, all of which can be impacted by Amazon to varying degrees. In my estimation, Clorox is at a reasonable price, but not at a cheap price, even after its fall. I'd get more excited if it was under 100 bucks. Clorox has historically been a great company, and many of its brands are in the top one or two spots in market share, and it's a dividend aristocrat. Now, I normally like to share financial metrics and trends like payout ratios and revenue and income and cash flow and debt and shares outstanding and stuff like that, but in a previous questions and answers video I had some comments that said they didn't want me to review stocks in these videos, telling me if you'd like some quick financial analysis when I talk about stocks in my question and answer videos, or if you don't like it when I do that. Okay, let's continue. My 7th of 11 questions comes from Mr. Me who said, I know that you're not a financial advisor, but I would like to ask if you had a startup dividend portfolio of around 5k to 10k, would you build positions and grow the shares or slowly add new stocks, let's say around 15 to 20 when you have 13 good companies? The question is mainly can you make the 13 do well compared to getting more companies and low share amounts? Hi Mr. Me. I think you're asking if a new dividend portfolio of let's say 13 stocks can perform as good as or better than a new portfolio of 20 stocks. Or to say that differently, if I was starting over would I start with a small amount of shares and a bunch of stocks or would I start with a larger amount of shares and a smaller number of stocks and then over time add more stocks in? I think both ways can work out fine over the long term, each has their pros and cons. My son, who isn't a teenager yet, has a small custodial account I started for him. I decided I'd establish positions in a variety of companies for him out of the gate, including Apple and Microsoft, even though I thought both were overpriced. So while I knew it would probably be smarter for me to sit on the sidelines for Microsoft and Apple to dip before investing into my son's custodial account, the peace of mind and simplicity of just establishing his positions right away was good enough for me since the amount of money we're talking about is small. However, if I had a material amount of money to invest, then I wouldn't dump it in stocks that I feel are too expensive just to establish the position. Basically, the more money I have to invest, the more careful I become, but when I have smaller amounts to invest, I'm often okay just DCAing in. Smarter investors probably treat every dollar equally, but I'm not perfect. So if I was starting from scratch with a 10k portfolio, I'd first plan out all my stocks and their approximate weighting I'd want in my end state portfolio. Then I'd establish my positions, even knowing that some are overpriced, and then I'd just keep DCAing into all my positions. I'd be open to changing my desired weightings and stocks as time went on, based on various things. 
However, if I was starting from scratch and had a 500k chunk of change to invest, then I'd generally wait for each desired stock to be under its intrinsic value before I'd do larger lump sum buys to establish each position. Thus, it would take me longer to have all the companies that I wanted for my new portfolio since I'd be waiting for dips and pullbacks. It's always good to remember that Buffett said that the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. Thus, the more you can practice patience and wait to buy when things are cheap, the more you should be rewarded. Some great stocks can remain overpriced for over a decade, so I'm not kidding when I talk about being patient. Of course, if you're okay with missing out on some gains and your intention is to hold for generations, then just establishing your positions right away might be worth considering. If you don't feel confident in doing things like calculating intrinsic values and such, then I'd just go with an ETF and either lump sum invest or DCA into it, depending on your comfort level and risk tolerance. If you go the single stock route, then make sure you're investing mostly in quality stocks. Your returns might be suboptimal if you aren't investing when things are cheap, but at least you can fall back on the fact that your companies are solid and over the decades you should still do okay. The less work you want to do to identify good deals, the more I'd encourage you to just go with ETFs rather than single stocks. Now in terms of do I think a 13 stock portfolio can perform as good as or better than a portfolio of 20 stocks? Sure, it can also do worse. I did a video called How Many Stocks Should You Own that might be worth watching for anyone who is thinking of starting a new portfolio. The more stocks you add, the more you probably will get closer to matching what an index does, broadly speaking. Obviously if you get into high beta stocks then you probably would have more volatility than the index. I like having 20 to 30 companies in my portfolio so that if one of my companies goes belly up my entire portfolio isn't shot. But that's also because I have a decently sized portfolio so I like more diversity. Remember, my dividends are literally paying my bills. No portfolio and no dividends means I go back to work to live. So my decisions about what I do in my portfolio are quite important to me because they ensure my family can live in our house and can get medical care and whatever. I also have a guideline where I don't want any single position getting much larger than 10% of my portfolio. Like let's pretend Apple came out with a car and suddenly the stock 5x'd. Would I sell some Apple if it became, let's say, 30% of my portfolio? Probably not for a slew of reasons, but that's why my 10% thing is a guideline and not a rule. Okay, let's move on. My 8th of 11 question comes from Christopher Michael who said, I love your content. I have a question. I'm in my early 40s and I'm wondering what you think of the prospect of MO being a company through my lifetime. I am long in MO and am a little nervous about this position since smoking rates have been and will be declining over the years. Any insight would be appreciated. Thank you. Hey Christopher, thank you for your compliment. I really appreciate it. So let's assume you mean for at least the next 35 years, though the reality is anti-aging investments are through the roof right now, so don't be surprised if you live for hundreds of years. I just shared a study on my Discord of how cellular rejuvenation therapy safely reverses signs of aging in mice. They were able to accelerate muscle regeneration and improve the function of the heart, brain, and optic nerves in mice. Basically it looks like more and more we're learning how to reprogram DNA to counter aging using technologies like CRISPR. So obviously tobacco stocks face headwinds in the form of regulations and lawsuits and such, and as people become healthier then things like smoking become less popular. Altria's management is trying to respond by broadening the products they offer, including heated tobacco and cannabis and such. I personally think that MO is a reasonable income play, but I don't think it's a long-term appreciation play. It's not something I'm putting in my kids' custodial accounts, but I'm betting it will provide me income in my lifetime, or at least long enough that as my overall income trends up, then I can take hits if its income trends down. Like many things, it will come down to how MO's management team continues to evolve their company. 
So far, history has shown they know how to navigate, but of course each year faces new challenges. Okay, let's continue. My ninth of 11 questions comes from various people who tell me all the reasons they can't get rich investing, whether it's from the guy who says he's too old to start, or the guy who says he can't invest enough, or the guy who's convinced dividend investing won't work, or the guy who says the markets are rigged so normal people can't win, or whatever. Look, you don't have to know you'll succeed in the market. You just have to be willing to risk finding out what will happen if you try. The reason I show my portfolio on YouTube is to help people see what's possible if you invest in non-crap stuff over long periods of time. I specifically say non-crap because you don't have to invest in the Apples or Amazons of the world to still do okay. You just want to avoid penny stocks and avoid gambling instead of investing, and you want to consistently invest. And who cares if you don't have a million dollar portfolio? A thousand dollar portfolio will still be generating some money. Your goal should just be to go on a better path, not be on the perfect path. Winston Churchill once said that perfection is the enemy of progress. So you don't need six-pack abs, just work on making your love handle smaller. Live frugally, invest, win. Okay, let's move on. The second to last question comes from Mr. Kriegs who said, Yo Gen X, been watching some videos and think you do a good job. For me personally as a 26 year old starting the grind, I don't know where dividends work into my investment portfolio. I have my safe fallback plans in the form of a total stock market index fund 401k employer match. I'm maxing my HSA in the SP500, then I dollar cost average into a 60-40 split of Bitcoin and Ethereum that I have in a savings account, giving me around a 5% yield. And lastly I'm working on saving 50k before I'm 30 for a down payment on a house so I don't ever have to pay rent again and can work on a second house 10 or 15 years down the line and rent out the first house for even more passive income. I'm not a baller, but I work 50 hours a week and make good money, but I have none left over for dividends in a Roth or Vanguard account. Think I should reconsider those options or stay the course? I think real estate will make more than dividends and can help me with taxes and leveraging and everything. Thanks Mr. Kriegs. First of all, you definitely are a baller in my book if you're only 26 and you've thought about various ways to invest and you're investing, so awesome job. You're already winning. I think your plans sound fine. Real estate can be a great wealth builder, so I recommend everyone try it out. One option you could consider is to take some of your crypto money and put it into quality stocks, whether they're dividend companies or not. You can do great with dividend stocks and great without them. Long term I believe in crypto, but if my kids were asking me how they should invest, then I'd tell them to focus on quality stocks first and then put a small position in crypto. Okay, let's move on. My last question comes from someone on my Discord who said that they heard me say that Apple was overpriced, so why not sell? That's a good question. Apple is a company I hope to keep forever, and believe it will be a generational tech company that my grandkids can benefit from, assuming I have grandkids someday. That doesn't mean I'd never sell it, but it being slightly overpriced wouldn't be a reason. It's like the house I live in. I wouldn't sell it just because Zillow said it was overpriced. Of course, the more overpriced it becomes, the more I'd consider selling it. Watch my video called When to Sell a Stock to hear key reasons why I'd sell. Like a reason I'd sell is if it or the market fundamentally changed to a point where Apple wasn't performing as I wanted it to. But right now I'm liking Apple's cash flow trends, its revenue trends, the shares outstanding trends, the EPS trends, the dividend trends, etc. Of course, if suddenly everyone was using new hollow communication brain chips and Apple was standing still with their tech, then I'd consider letting it go. But the reality is that I really believe in Apple's future and can realistically see how they can keep growing and in some cases could even explode in growth. Apple has been one of my best performers for the time I've held it and quoting Lynch, 
Selling your winners and holding your losers is like cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. Of course, you got to believe in your winners. Oftentimes, I see people selling their winners and holding on to their losers because human psychology helps them do the exact opposite of what they should be doing. But if you calculate intrinsic values and such, then you don't worry too much about stock price. I don't sell solely because of price movement in a stock. I sometimes see people making buy or sell decisions based only on stock price changes rather than because of fundamentals, and I feel that is risky to do. You shouldn't sell just because your stocks go up, you might have room to keep running. Or conversely, some people sell in hopes of avoiding the rug getting pulled out from underneath them as their stock falls. The reason why most retail investors in the market do so poorly is that they trade too much. Apple is one of the flowers in my dividend portfolio, and I think it will keep providing me value for the rest of my life. If another company came along which I believed in more, ideally in tech, then selling Apple for it would be something I'd consider. But I don't need the cash right now. If I did, then I'd consider selling it. Another reason I'm not selling is because most of the market is overpriced, not just Apple. If it was just Apple, then that would provide more impetus for me to look carefully at it. Hopefully that answered your question about why I don't sell Apple in my portfolio. Speaking of portfolios, M1 Brokerage has a promotion running for a free $50 cash bonus for new accounts. The way it works is you click on my M1 referral link in the description of this video and then either open a brokerage account and fund it with $100 or open a retirement account and fund it with $500. Then you need to keep your money inside the new account for 30 days from the date of deposit to get the free referral cash. Make sure to check the details before you sign up to see what they're offering when you watch this video. Okay, now I'd like to shout out my new Patreon aristocrats who have signed up since my last video. So thank you Woodwalker, thank you JazzyMD, Thank you Wasted Noon Craft Brew, and thank you Jesper for signing up. Aristocrats gain access to my dividend spreadsheet product that I use in my videos, and they gain access to multiple private channels on my free dividend Discord chat server, where I let my upper tier Patreons watch my videos before I release them to the public, as well as let them vote on which thumbnails I use for my videos, and of course they get more direct access to me. If you made it this far in the video, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Also, if you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. Finally, I highly recommend that you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it and is growing all the time. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.